If you're new here, we're really glad you're with us. Uh, thank you to all of our readers, all of our servants, those who are leading in children's ministry this morning. You know, as a, as a new uh, church, as, as the pastor of a, a new church, I'm often trying to, to figure out how to describe what we're doing to people, you know, like what do you, what do you say to somebody when you're telling them about a new church? Uh, and so I'll say, you know, it's, it's a great place. You should check it out. The people are phenomenal. Phenomenal. You're going to meet. I make up words is one of the things that I do to get people. That's the only way to describe Trinity is a new word, phenomenal. I'll say, you know, the people are great. You'll, you'll meet awesome friends. You'll have cool new friends. Uh, children's ministry is, is great. Uh, your kids are going to love it. They're going to have a blast. Uh, we've, got, we've got great music. We've got local coffee. We've got mini muffins, and they're vegan. We've got lunch sometimes, including today, which we do. Um, but then I start to get carried away and say, you know, the music's just, it's incredible. There's big crowds. It's like, oomts, 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 all the time. It's just bananas in the worship. Uh, and, and what comes over me in some of these moments is sort of this mentality that I have to pitch to people uh, what, what Jesus can do for them, what the church can do for them, you know. Uh, and this isn't all the time bad, you know, and, and all these things are true except the techno gospel part. Um, but as I'm describing it, I often catch myself realizing, you know, that's not really the heart of Christianity or the heart of the church. And maybe the biggest problem with this is that if, if I get into the mindset of we've got to do more to attract people and we've got to, you know, be better and, and more excellent in everything we do, there's, there's really no end to that. Uh, so I saw this on Twitter yesterday. This is 110% real. This is from a pastor. Come to blank church for Easter. Get ready for helicopter egg drops. They actually drop Easter eggs out of a helicopter. Uh, Easter egg hunts, professional family photos, an Easter bunny appearance, and a message I'm excited to share. So not surprisingly, this is where? Texas. Only in Texas. It's in Dallas, of course. But there's a picture of a helicopter floating above the front of the church. People are gathered in this big circle. There's the Easter bunny in the middle, and it's raining Easter eggs on kids. So church should be a life-giving, positive experience. Um, but I think our, our tendency to want to kind of present ourselves as, as better than we are, more impressive than we are, uh, it, it might not serve us well in the long run. We might be overselling ourselves just a little bit. Um, and, and so what we're trying to do in this season leading up to Easter, this is the historic season of Lent where we focus on what matters most in a Christian's life, what matters most in the grand scheme of redemptive history, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so even though today is Palm Sunday, uh, we're not doing a Good Friday service this year, we hope to in the future, but this is essentially our Good Friday service, a service where we do the traditional readings of Christ on the cross, a, a time where we look at the death of Jesus in detail and see what it means for our lives. And I think all of the things that we can talk about with our churches, they point us to deeper realities and deep longings. Uh, the desire for great friends points to a, a desire for community and for belonging. A desire to have great teaching and worship, it, it points to this deep longing for us to have a, a real experience with God in his presence. Um, but regardless of the size of the, the production, uh, we can go directly into these spaces. We can go right to the realities, right to the longings, right to the fears, right to the desires. And so two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' Last Supper. Last week, we looked at his last temptation. This week, we're looking at his last words. And so when Jesus is hanging on the cross, when he's crucified, 
Uh, he says seven different things. If you look across the four Gospels, we see seven short sayings from the cross. And so these are often called the seven sayings of the cross, and they're traditional in uh, Lent experience. And so what we're going to do today is look at uh, just four of these sayings, uh, and we're going to look at why Jesus said them, and, and most importantly, what Jesus was accomplishing by each of these statements. Each of these statements from the cross represents something that his death and resurrection accomplishes or fulfills in our lives. And so it'll be a little bit of a different message. There's not as much sort of application, but hopefully uh, just the sheer weight of this reality uh, will, will wash over us, will transform us by its incredible power. And so I want to open with uh, prayer uh, and ask God to, to join us in this space. And so, Father God, we come before you as your people. It's so good to gather as your people, to see one another, to, to enjoy each other's presence, to, to laugh and have a good time, and, and to know that you are right here among us. You are smiling down on us. You love us. You are building everything that we can see here. Uh, and so, Father, this is a, a heavy morning for us. We look at your Son on the cross uh, and Lord, so much of me and so much of us wants to turn our eyes. It's so difficult to, to, to sustain a meditation on his death, Lord. But would you enable us to do that this morning? Would you show us things that are true of, of who you are by what we see on the cross? Lord Jesus, would you show us what you are doing with your life and your death and your resurrection? Holy Spirit of God, we invite you to to reveal all of this to us. We know you are with us and among us, within us even, but we give you permission to, to glorify the Father and the Son this morning. Spirit, would you do all that you intend to do this morning in our hearts and minds? And so, Lord, we pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, before we get into the four sayings from the cross, I want to look at the scene at the cross. This is a, a dramatic scene. You know, I grew up in a, in a charismatic church, and we had church dramas all the time. Uh, we don't really do drama in this church, at least not yet, but uh, we, we have these dramatic stories in the scriptures, uh, and this is, this is absolutely the most dramatic moment in human history, and there's a brutality that comes in this passage. The Bible doesn't hide that. It doesn't minimize it. It doesn't uh, use sort of euphemisms and, and gloss over it, but instead it draws us into the brutality so that it can show us what is true of, of God, what, what is really at the heart of Christianity. And so you can picture this in your mind. It's, it's early Friday morning. On Thursday night, Jesus and his followers had the Last Supper, and they went out to Gethsemane together. And Jesus was praying. He was sweating blood in the garden. Judas and the soldiers came and arrested him, and they took him at night, and they put him on trial early in the morning. And so he's brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the, the Jewish ruling class. They're like uh, religious lawyers, essentially, and they, they charge him with blasphemy for claiming to be equal with God. And so they hand him over to Pilate, which is the Jewish governor who's been appointed by Rome, and they, they give him to Pilate for sentencing, and what they want is the death sentence. Now, Pilate doesn't think that that makes sense. The uh, theological blasphemy doesn't warrant the death penalty. And he tries to, to free himself of this by releasing Barabbas. You remember this moment? 
And yet it's the crowds and, and the Jewish religious leaders that begin chanting for Jesus. And they're chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And at that moment, the crowd takes over as they begin to beat him and whip him and mock him and insult him. And that's where our, our readings began this morning. They, they make him carry this heavy, large cross to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. This was reserved for the worst and the most intense executions in Jerusalem. And at this point, we recognize that all of this is now being done totally outside of the law. There's nothing in Jewish law that says that you can put someone on trial, convict him, and then lead him to his execution all in the same hour. This is sheer rage on the part of the crowds just taking over. Their emotions have totally run away with themselves. And so Jesus is made to carry this cross and he's leading the group to the place of Golgotha. And it says when he could no longer carry the cross, it was carried for him. And then finally they laid him down on top of the cross and began to crucify him or attach him to the cross. And so what they would do is take these large railroad-sized spikes and drill them into the hands or into the wrists of the person so that they wouldn't break any bones, but the body weight of the individual could be hung from the tree. They did the same thing by nailing these long nails into his feet or his ankles. And this was exceptionally brutal. This wasn't normally done in Roman execution. Normally the feet were left to hang, which would allow the person to actually suffocate and die more quickly. So this was an extremely brutal form of execution to let his legs be pinned up enough that he can remain on the cross far longer than was normal. And so they dug a hole for his cross, planted it, and hoisted him into the air. Now it says that it was the third hour after sunrise, so that's probably about 9 a.m. The third hour that they hoisted him into the air on the cross. And so imagine at this moment being one of the, the disciples of Jesus. Imagine for the last three years, this man has called you by name. You've left everything to follow him. You've been walking with him, and the things you've seen him do are nothing short of miraculous. He's, he's calmed a storm with a single word. He's fed thousands upon thousands with a few loaves and fishes. He's healed countless sick people. He's given sight to the blind. He's even raised the dead. And now you're seeing him, and he's hanging on a cross. And he's doing nothing, nothing to resist, nothing to, to hurl back insults. And all four of the gospel accounts say at the sixth hour, about noon, a darkness fell on the land. So imagine this, as you're watching Jesus on the cross, it's the middle of the day, it's, it's high noon, and yet a supernatural darkness falls totally across either Jerusalem or over all the earth. And for three hours, it said the sun did not shine. And so utter and complete darkness at this moment. Darkness, of course, is a, is a symbol of judgment, a symbol of God's displeasure, a symbol of death. And it was probably at this moment that the, the Israelites and the Roman leaders began to realize that they had made an enormous mistake. This was before the dead bodies had begun to come out of the grave and the earthquake happened and, and everyone realized what had just taken place. But in this moment, they began to realize what they had done, but it was too late. Jesus' body was already dying. 
His lungs were collapsing. His body was sagging as his hands and feet were being pulled apart. And so there between these two criminals hung on the cross in total darkness, the crowd started to, to dissipate. The people left. And so his family and friends begin to, to filter in and gather at the foot of the cross. And it was during this time, between the sixth and ninth hours in the afternoon, that Jesus speaks his final words, these sayings from the cross. And so the first one is this, Father, forgive them. In Luke 23, it says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And so each of these four statements that we're going to look at show us something true of the nature of the cross, something that Jesus accomplished or fulfilled by his death on the cross in our place. And it's incredible that the first thing on Jesus's mind is he's hoisted into the air and made to die on this cross. The first thing on his mind is forgiveness. It's not his own pain. It's not this physical torment. What he is thinking about is the sin of those in front of him. It shows us that the, the spiritual pain of seeing people sin against him was even worse than the physical pain of this extreme torment, this incredible execution. Still, Jesus is not self-centered in this moment. He's praying for the salvation, for the forgiveness of those who are sinning against him. And that's the first thing that Jesus' death accomplishes for us, forgiveness. It accomplishes forgiveness in God's sight. We talked about last week how God's wrath, his justice, his righteousness against the sin of the world, all the wrong, all of the evil in the world, it had to come down, and yet it didn't come down on us who deserved it, but it instead came down on Christ on the cross. And what that accomplishes for us is total and complete forgiveness. And forgiveness has always been at the heart of Jesus' ministry. Just in Matthew alone, we've seen this. When Jesus teaches us how to pray in Matthew 6, he prays, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. He instructed his disciples not to just forgive people seven times, but to forgive 77 times or, or an unlimited amount, basically. And it was at the Lord's Supper that he took a cup of wine and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, which is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so at this point, you might have an objection, whether you're new to Christianity or even if you're a Christian, you might feel it rising up. All this is a little bit intense. It's heavy. Are, are we really needing to talk about forgiveness this much or about the cross this much? Can't we just focus on how to live good and loving lives? The reality is that if we don't understand the fullness of what we've been forgiven from, we'll never truly be loving and forgiving people. You may remember... Uh, a few years ago, it hasn't been that long, two or three years ago, there was a shooting at the church in South Carolina. You remember this? Uh, Emmanuel, uh, American Methodist Church, uh, a historically black congregation, and a white male came in and murdered several people and injured many more. And what I remember most about this event was the, the trial afterwards. It wasn't long afterwards. This entire church came to the trial of this young man. 
And one after one, they came forward and they began to speak. And it was 70-year-old Ethel Lance. She said, you took something very precious away from me, but I forgive you. And I pray that God has mercy on your soul. I forgive you. Next was Felicia Sanders, who survived the attack but lost her son. She said, may God have mercy on you. Bethane Middleton Brown, who lost her sister, came forward and said, for me, I'm a work in progress and acknowledge that I'm very angry. But we have no room for hate. We have to forgive. I pray, God, on your soul. One by one, they came forward to offer forgiveness that he hadn't asked for. And then they prayed for his salvation, for his forgiveness, and offered to meet with him in prison to do Bible study with him. Now, how is this possible? It's only by, by understanding what we've been forgiven from that we can truly be forgiving people. They weren't minimizing or overlooking the incredible sin of this young man, but they understood themselves as forgiven people. Jesus himself said, the one who is forgiven much will love much. And understanding what we've been forgiven from allows us to be agents of forgiveness in a broken world. And so the first thing that Jesus accomplishes on the cross for us is forgiveness. Now, the second thing he says that we'll look at, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was in our passage this morning in Matthew 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this shows us that Jesus is experience of loss, his loss of the Father's presence. It wasn't symbolic. It was real. It was, it, was, it was brutal. It was excruciating. Again, this pain of losing the Father's presence for Jesus was far worse than the physical pain of being hung on a cross. He understood his death as bearing the sins of his followers, and he understood that this required the loss of his Father's presence. And so the second thing that Jesus' death accomplishes for us, it's not forsakenness, but it's adoption. We who were forsaken are now adopted. We're made sons and daughters of the living God, never again to be forsaken. Now, I think all of us know what it feels like to be rejected, to feel overlooked, to be minimized, to be left out, to be forsaken. We know what it's like to be cut from the team or demoted from a position or, or fired from a company. Even worse, you've had conflict with close friends that have turned against you, even a, a sibling or a family member that you no longer get to speak with. They won't return your calls. Maybe even more so, you've had your own spouse forsake you or, or a parent that left you as a child. And so you know full well the pain of forsakenness. It's the greatest fear we have in life is to be, to be left, to be forsaken. The greatest need that we have in life on a human level is to belong somewhere, to belong in a family, to belong in a place where we are known and loved. And so forsakenness, it's a wound that never really heals. You can treat it, you can, you can care for it, you can work around it, but the wound will always be there. And there's a forsakenness that Jesus experiences on the cross that we will never have to experience it because he has. 
And what Jesus is saying comes directly from Psalm 22. And so this is a Psalm of David. David, one of the great leaders of Israel, this man after God's own heart. He knew rejection and forsakenness maybe better than anyone in all the scriptures. His friend Saul, his mentor, tried for years to kill him. He was being hunted. Later, when he became king, his own son tried to kill him and would hunt him as well. And so in Psalm 22, David voices this prayer from from the pit of forsakenness. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. All of this is Psalm 22. And David's experience of forsakenness, it was real, but it was, it was primarily uh, emotional. He was feeling the forsakenness of, of the people who were closest to him in life. And yet at the end of the psalm, he still commits himself to the Lord. But what Jesus was experiencing on the cross was, was the fulfillment of this psalm. It was the full measure of rejection, of, of forsakenness on our behalf. And so there's a level of of rejection that we can feel in this life, but there's a level of forsakenness that we will never have to be exposed to. And adoption is right at the heart of Jesus' death in our place. One of the great celebrations of of this year for me, on Monday just six days ago, my little sister and her husband officially adopted their son. Uh, Some of you know they've been fostering this sweet little boy. He's three now, Anthony. Uh, and over the last year, a year plus, it's been this roller coaster ride of, of court dates and other siblings, and will he go back to the parents or will he stay with them? And for a few months, they've known that, that he would become their son, but finally on Monday, they had the court date, they celebrated, and he is officially 100% their son. It's one of the greatest celebrations you can have in, in all of life. Not just a a biological child, but an adopted child brought into your family. And if you think about adoption on a human level, it shows us so much that's true of what God does for us in making us his sons and daughters. Adoption is a a legal decree. It's it's official. It, It changes your status as a human being. You're not just figuratively a son or a daughter. You are you are legitimately, you are in every way a true son or daughter. Once you're adopted, you're adopted for life. You're never taken away. You can never be forsaken. You are in that family forever. And when you're adopted, you receive all the benefits of a child, of that family. Any of the riches, any of the wealth that that family has becomes yours. And then lastly, adoption is extremely costly. It can be about $40,000 for a private adoption. And so what we see is, is Jesus, the cost of this adoption, it costs Jesus his very own life. And so forsakenness is the second thing on the mind of Jesus on the cross, and it's through his death and resurrection that we know we will never be forsaken. But instead, like little Anthony, we are, we are adopted into the eternal family of God. Now the third thing is he slowly began to die. 
of John 19 records this saying. It says, knowing that everything had now been finished and so scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, it is finished. The grand plan of of redemption from the beginning of the world, from, from the foundation, from the creation of the world, this plan that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had decided on, it had finally come to its climax And I picture Jesus sort of rising up on the cross, getting one last really good breath of air, lifting himself up on the nail and his feet and shouting, it is finished. Death is certain at this point. The payment has been made. There's nothing left to do. Certainly nothing for us to do. And this phrase, it is finished, it shows us what Jesus has accomplished by his death, and that's our freedom. Complete, utter, eternal freedom. And I know for me, that is incredibly good news. I mean, how much of my life is, is trying to prove myself or, or defend myself or, or promote myself in some way? It's exhausting, isn't it? Even in places where I know that I'm loved and accepted in my own family, I'm trying to present myself in the best possible light. And I think this is a human experience. I can barely imagine in this, in this life that somebody could know us so completely and yet still love us so fully. And so we're managing our little reputations and trying to, to fend off threats to our, our name. And yet Jesus frees us completely. Maybe one of my favorite hymns, it's called, It Is Finished. It says, nothing either great or small, nothing can you claim. Jesus died and paid it all, only plead his name. It is finished, it is finished. What more could we ever do? Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. And so just after Jesus announces it is finished, he cries out one last phrase. After accomplishing our freedom, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Luke 23 shows us this. It says darkness had come over the whole land. The sun had stopped shining. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. All of Jesus' life had been this perfect union, this perfect fellowship with with God the Father and God the Son. As we said last week, he had never seen his Father's back. Had only been treated with love and acceptance. And yet even here in the darkness, as his Father's face is turned away, his final words are prayer. Their, their God-word attention and, and focus and communication, trust. Even in this dying breath, he says, it is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now in these final words, we see Jesus' willingness to die for us. At every moment in this whole narrative, Jesus is in complete control of his fate. He knows everything that must happen. He doesn't doesn't do anything to minimize his pain. He is completely willing to die for us. We see the incredible trust that Jesus has in his Father. 
He knows that this was the plan from the beginning, and even in his dying breath, his voice is one of trust. And we see this incredible love, the union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that what Jesus was accomplishing in this moment was drawing us into that love. The only way for us to be drawn into the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was through Jesus' death, through his dying breath. And so in this phrase, this is one of my favorite phrases. It originally comes from Psalm 30. And I think it's one of the best prayers we can have as, as a son or daughter of God. And how many moments in our lives when, when we're totally uncertain, when we're totally overwhelmed or fearful, we can pray, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. When something is too much for us, when, when we don't see how it's going to play out, when our fears are, are collapsing over us, Whatever your challenges, whatever your hopes, your dreams, your desires, we can pray, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we know that what we will receive is God's goodness, his love, his kindness, his mercy. Because Jesus has, has done this for us. Now we receive nothing but the, the pure, unfiltered, undiluted love of God, the 200 proof love of God. Nothing but pure love in its richest form. And so many hours into this execution, the Roman soldiers, what they would do is break the legs of the criminal. And this was a way to just get it over with, to, to, to allow the person to suffocate, suffocate quickly and pass away. But as they approached Jesus, they didn't have to do this. They poked him in his side and said that water and blood ran out separately. And so this was a way that they knew he had died. And as it goes, they say that this is a sign of death because the, the internal organs have been split. And in particular, the heart has been torn open. And that's why it's always been said that Jesus didn't die of suffocation or from any of his, his injuries, but he died of a broken heart. And it was in this dark moment, the darkest moment in all of human history, the sun had stopped shining. The, the thing that gives light to our world had completely gone out in the Son of God. The true and eternal light, the light that created the world, he goes completely dark as well. And it says the curtain was torn in two. The thing that has been separating God and man for all this time in Israel's worship. It tears completely and now it's just cloth on the ground and the glory of God would be laid in a grave but it wasn't defeat out of darkness a new light will shine into our own sin Jesus speaks forgiveness into our forsakenness Jesus speaks adoption into our striving and scheming and defending he speaks freedom and even in our own lives, even to our dying breaths, we remember the loving care of our Father's hands. And in a word, we see a coming resurrection. Let's pray. Father, it takes so much to see what you have done for us by sending your only son to the cross. It's not easy to look and to know that it was our sin that put him there. 
and held him there until it was accomplished. But Lord, may we see this, may we believe. And Father, understanding the full depths of what your Son sank into on our behalf, may we understand the glorious triumph of his resurrection, knowing that through his new life, we too find new life, that there was no other way. Victory had to come through defeat. Life had to come through death. And so, Father, as we look at your cross all week this week, Lord, as we look to your cross, may we see your face smiling down on us, even the face of your Son from the cross, announcing forgiveness, announcing adoption, announcing freedom, announcing the loving care of you, Father. Father, this week and and especially on Sunday, Father, may we experience the fullness of this good news, Lord. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.